The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school and an MDiv student slated to graduate in May of 2021, Lord willing, and if Dr. Piper allows. And speaking of which, <laughs> I have Dr. Piper with me here in the studio. Uh, Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. is our president emeritus. He served for about 20 years as the first president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, in fact, 22 and a half years. And then he was succeeded by Dr. Jonathan L. Master, our current president. But we continue these faith and practice segments with Dr. Piper, where we address listener-submitted questions on a variety of biblical and theological themes. And we have a great lineup of questions today, we Dr. Do. Piper. I'm, I'm looking do, forward to digging into these. But before we do, would you please open us with a word of prayer? Just one more thing, Zach. I'm going to let you graduate because since you're helping me start a church, I need you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray. Most glorious God in heaven, we bless you. For you're the God of truth, the God of wisdom. You've given us a word that is true without error in all that it teaches. We thank you. You've given us a confession and catechisms that are an accurate interpretation of that word. And we thank you that you've promised us the work of the Spirit. Uh, to make the, the mind of Christ known to us uh, through the scriptures and to give us wisdom. And you've promised us when we lack wisdom to ask of you and you give it to us freely and do not upbraid. So Lord, we need wisdom as we would answer these questions. Uh, keep us uh, uh, careful and wise and may this program be useful to our hearers. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. You know, our first question is drawn out of the pages of Genesis, and it comes from Jocelyn Groff, that's my lovely wife, of Greer, South Carolina. She asks, do we teach that Lot was selfish for choosing the best land? Well, do we teach? Uh, no. There will be people that do teach that, but in terms of confessionalism, there's really nothing uh, in the Scripture that would uh, cause us to... In fact, we need to... Let me back up. We actually need to be careful when we come to motives, particularly back in the early days of the history of God's uh, covenant people. Uh, what the Spirit's given to us in Genesis chapter 13 is a division that really in part uh, in God's providence was to guarantee the land to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, Abraham was acting graciously when he offered uh, Lot the choice of, of land. In Genesis uh, 15, Abraham says in verse 8, Please, Abram, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me, if to the left, and I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. So Lot probably could have chosen another site in the land. He could have gone to the far north of the land, up to what now is uh, 
uh, Lebanon. Um, so he chose it because he was uh, a husband, uh, agricultural fellow, and, and uh, it was a good choice. But in God's providence, this was the Spirit's way of guaranteeing that Abraham would have the land that was promised to him from the brook of Egypt to the uh, Euphrates uh, River. A second, in God's providence, it allows us to see Abram as a man of faith who, trusting the promises of God, could defeat a, a gigantic coalition that swept right down uh, on the uh, east side of Sodom and Gomorrah and then back up, capturing all that lay in their path, and Abraham and his little group of men by faith. Um, and then third, it, uh, in God's providence, was the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the rearing up of two peoples that will play a very significant role in the life of the covenant people, namely Ammon and Moab. And particularly, well, they both play, but Moab in particular will play quite a significant role. And so even out of all of that wretchedness, uh, God, who is overruling all things, for these purposes. So we best look at these things to see what God is doing uh, in them. And you do see Abram's character, though, as a gracious man who didn't want the strife in the first place and who would sacrificially, sac uh, sacrificially make it a, reach a decision that was not to his advantage. So at the end of the day, it's not that Lot was selfish, but perhaps we can go as far to say as reading the consequences anyway, Lot was foolish to put himself in the way of unrighteous men for the sake of being in a beautiful land rather than going somewhere where his spirit might flourish more than his material well-being. That's true, but again, we don't know the status where he went in the land and at what point he moved as uh, from being on a farm into one of those cities themselves. So That's right. Even there... Um, but that's often the thing that he's most castigated for was to make a decision on the basis of financial reasons and not spiritual reasons. And he was removing himself from uh, the expression of uh, the covenant household uh, in Abram's household as well. At the same time, and Dr. Morales makes this point, particularly regarding Noah, but I think this applies in Lot's case as well. We, let, we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and nowhere in Scripture are we told of selfish Lot or even foolish Lot. We are told of righteous, righteous Lot. Lot. And yeah. so however we read this narrative, we have, to, we have to come back to that scriptural, biblical, spirit-inspired um, uh, appraisal right. of Lot's character. Point. That at the end of the day, he's a righteous man in surrounded by unrighteousness uh, in, a, in a bad situation. But that's a great question. But there are other uh, spiritual lessons there for us. Yeah. You, you've touched on one, and, and not that necessarily he did this, but simply to extrapolate. Uh, when you make a decision uh, about a, uh, where you're going to live and what job you're going to take, maybe you've been offered a really good promotion, uh, the very first consideration must always be, is there a good Reformed church there? And then if you are committed to Christian education in the school and not homeschooling, is there going to be a good school there? And these considerations will cause you to sacrifice your financial or career advancement, but don't ever move without knowing for sure that there's going to be those needs, because they're much more important. And as a pastor, time and again, I had to deal with that. In Houston, in the oil patch, 
people were sent everywhere all the time and keep saying, you make sure that you've got a good church. The other one is, though, that um, what we do see is you cannot live in the world and not be affected by the world. So Lot um, was duped by his daughters, but they had already been sorely infected. And one of them was already betrothed to a man. I guess, or they both were. Sorely infected with the uh, wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah so that the incestuous uh, strategy did not seem strange to them. And that is a great tragedy of the entire episode. That plus the... um the destruction of Lot's wife into a pillar of salt and the, the various mysteries that surround these things. But good question, Jocelyn. Thank you for sending that in, and thank you, Dr. Piper, for your answer. Our next question comes from Chad Warner of Simpsonville, South Carolina, and he's uh, jumping forward for us in the canon to the book of Isaiah and the closing chapters of Isaiah, and he asks this, what does Isaiah 65, 17 to 25 describe specifically within that passage? What does Isaiah 65, 20 refer to when it says, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. And when I'm looking at the New American Standard, the translation there of verse 20 says, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Yes, and so that's what I was looking at. We have a, a translation uh, problem, and I'm trying to get down here to this uh, footnote. So in the Hebrew, evidently, the one who misses the mark um, is, is one who does not reach the age of 100. And so I think that's the preferable translation. I don't know where uh, uh, Chad gets the other, probably from the New King James. Um, but uh, this is a whole context of God, uh, I think, a time of great uh, gospel prosperity uh, that will be a time when the nations do come uh, en masse uh, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... We get these figures of speech, such as the child playing at the uh, hole of the viper or the lion and the wolf lying down together. So it's a way of saying there's going to be an age of great uh, gospel prosperity. And one of the ways that one thinks of prosperity is long-livedness. And so um, because death is the cause of the curse, death is the curse of sin, that it's this way of saying is that the curse is going to be greatly removed during this period. Not that everybody's going to live till they're 100, but the curse will be greatly abated, even as it is increasingly through the advance of the gospel. So in our own lives, individually, in sanctification, as the confession says, that although we have this remnant of sin, the more we live and grow, uh, the less of a hold it should have on us. So I think it's pretty much a spiritual thing, but there will be a physical prosperity. If, if the gospel prevails to that degree, um, there will be uh, physical as well as spiritual prosperity. Thanks, Chad. There are other interpretations, I think, of this passage and what exactly Isaiah describes in the variety of passages dealing with this glorious uh, time with the prevailing of the gospel in the future. And um, you know, I just finished reading one 
uh, one standpoint from a, an amillennial perspective, and it was actually a very helpful presentation because he, I think, very charitably presents the post-millennial perspective as well. And so just some recommended reading without me getting into it, since I am not at all equipped to do so, but um, the book is The Promise of the Future by Cornelis Venema. It's about 20 years old at this point, but it's really a, an excellent treatment, and I think the fairest um, treatment by an amillennial author of the postmillennial position of uh, is this describing a golden age before the return of Christ or is this describing something else entirely spiritual realities or um, the intermediate age or something another like useful that. book will be uh, Ian Murray's book The Puritan Hope that Banner Truth has published and then Marcel Kick's Eschatology of Victory yes yes and those would be two postmillennial well, the Puritan yes, hope right. is not really post-millennial. It's merely that there's going to be gospel prosperity. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Chad, for the question. As always, an excellent question for us to handle here on the podcast. Our next question comes from Sam Morris of Cape Carteret, North Carolina. And he says this, a discussion with a brother on the new administration's policy to assist in funding abortions in other countries prompted this question. And by new administration, he's referring to Mr. Biden's presidential administration. May the Christian ever refuse to pay taxes in protest to the government's use of tax funds for sinful purposes. Obviously, the Christian is obligated to pay taxes to be subject to the governing authorities in their spheres of legitimate authority and is not responsible for the legislative decision on how funding is <coughs> allocated. But at what point does the government step outside its lawful authority, aside from requiring the Christian to personally engage in sin? No doubt Rome was using tax dollars for sinful purposes, or is this an issue not left to the individual Christian to decide, but to the lesser magistrate? So very appreciative for your thoughts on this issue. Thank you, Sam, and I hope I get to see you uh, in two weeks when I'm over there at New Bern. Uh, it's a very thoughtful question and one that we all have to wrestle with. Uh, I think you're, you really get to the, the issue. Um, when Paul tells us to give taxes to taxes are due, he's doing that in the context of a very corrupt uh, government, even our Savior. Uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. It was a corrupt Jewish government. It was a corrupt a Roman government. So we as individuals don't have the privilege uh, to make what decisions that we want to make uh, in terms of I'm going to not pay my taxes because some portion will go to these sinful things. You know, uh, in the first place, you would have to kind of prorate your taxes, and you don't know how much of your taxes even go to something like that. Uh, and of course, that's a broader question as well. You turn around and you get into, I know some people wrestle with um, what mutual funds do you invest in? And you know, are they supporting, where do you buy groceries? You know, what's the guy doing with, with the money there? Where do you bank? And then we're, we're gonna have more, well, don't take this wrong when I say more serious issues. At this point, abortion is not required, but LGBT rights and transgenderism are right on the cusp of being made civil rights issues. And we are going to have a much bigger problem uh, with not, not taxes, simply with how we live and, and what we're going to be able to teach and preach. And again, don't take this in the wrong way, but the first four laws are in a sense more important. Now the slaughtering of unborn children uh, is terrible, but 
the idolatry and the Sabbath breaking uh, of our culture and how it's promoted by the government is also as terrible. So, you know, we just can't draw the line. Now, that last point, though, that you make, Sam, is very important. Calvin deals with this in the Institutes. And that is, uh, it is proper for a lesser magistrate to uh, do things he can do. We couldn't get into the taxes because he can't cancel the federal taxes. But he could say that in our state, he could run on a platform or they could run on a platform. In our state, we will shut down all abortion centers. In our state, there'll be no same-sex marriage. Now they have the, the biblical right to do that. Um, whether or not the Supreme Court would uphold it at this point, uh, we're going to find out because they've just agreed to hear a case um, that I think it's from Kentucky that has an anti-abortion law that you cannot do any physical damage cutting up the fetus in the second trimester. The word fetus is wrong. Cut the baby in the second trimester. It actually goes further than that. It requires some kind of um, interment of the of the remains as well, either a, a, a dignified burial or a plan for cremation and memorialization oh, good. of the life. So um, these are things that uh, why I believe that Christians should get involved, and particularly in the state and county government, and uh, make laws, force them to force the liberals to spend their money on fighting back against righteous laws. But the tax issue, it would be nice, uh, and it's always hard to keep your motives pure in those situations as well. Yeah. You know, I do think that uh, this issue of the United States federal government funding abortions internationally, it is just uh, an outrageous proposal and an outrageous practice. I was pleased when the previous administration uh, halted all of those expenditures because that is something that the federal government you can do with uh, just unilaterally out of the executive and be within your constitutional powers. But this whole Mexico City uh, issue is what it's called, the Mexico City uh, policy or program. Um, this whole issue is very distressing, and, and we need to start with prayer, but then as individual Christians engage in, um, in activism and political mobilization as appropriate. And, and I think that's an important issue to keep in front of us and not to forget in the midst of everything else. Thank you, Dr. P. Our next question from Chuck Murphy uh, it regards apostasy and the invisible, invisible church. He says, uh, and he's building on a, a previous episode of the podcast where I had Zach Dotson, a student, on, and we were discussing issues relating to the federal vision um, controversy. But uh, Chuck asks, can you work out the discussion regarding apostasy in the visible and invisible church a bit more? I certainly agree that we do have the unconverted among the body, but the phrasing led me to wonder if you think that the unconverted's departure from the visible church represents any substantial change in the status of a person. If not, could you spend a little time on Hebrews ten twenty nine? All right. Well, to unpack this, we need to first define our terms, uh, Chuck. And the invisible church is simply the language that the confession uses to describe a reality that we find in Scripture, and that the church at times is described as uh, the body of Christ. And it consists of, with our confession's definition, of the elect who have, are, and will live. So all the elect are chosen in Christ and are given to Christ, 
and that is his body, and that is one expression of the church. The visible church, then, is the temporal geographical expression of the church in each age. It consists of professors and their children. So we'll say believers, but I'm trying to get to this issue of apostasy. Now, on the one hand, we need to understand that they're not two different churches. The visible church, if it's a true church with the marks of the church, is a true expression of the visible church. It's the inv of the invisible church. The invisible church made apparent in the age where it is. With the students, I often use the illustration of an iceberg. So if you see an iceberg from the distance, uh, there'll be this towering mountain of ice. We were up just a year ago last August, and a bush pilot took us out and landed in a whole area of icebergs. It's fascinating. So here it is. It's like a great mountain. Um, and we also know that, you know, whatever, two, let's just say two-thirds of it is under the water. You don't even see it. Now, from the distance, though, so let's say that the iceberg is the invisible church. It's got a visible expression that is part of the whole. But because it calves with breaking off from the distance, the iceberg will seem to be larger than it is. And so the visible church is a true expression, as the top of the iceberg is, is a true expression of the invisible church, but it's not an infallible expression of the invisible church. So when one apostatizes, there's only one of two things that can be true of that one. Either uh, he is converted and temporarily falls away. I said there's three things. He's unconverted and uh, falls away. And he's unconverted and reprobate and falls away. So someone who has been disciplined by the elders in the church and put out is not necessarily reprobate, but they're no longer a part of the visible church, which means they have no right to consider themselves to be Christians. If they persist in their sinful uh, behavior, then we rightly reach the conclusion that this apostasy is um, a sign of reprobation if they die in, in that state. And we excommunicate somebody, we're not saying at that point that we think they're reprobate. Unless it was somebody, and we won't go into this today, that we are convinced committed the unpardonable sin, and then we would be saying that they are reprobate. So the text in Hebrew, and I didn't hear the other discussions, actually explained a bit of it to me, but the text that you point us to in Hebrews 10.29, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and he's insulted the Spirit of grace. So because of what is referred to as the judgment of charity, um, we refer to those who are in the visible church as having a right to the privileges. And so Paul will write to the, I'm using write in a different word now, sends his letter to the Corinthian church, he addresses them as the saints who are in Corinth. Then he has to deal with a man who must be excommunicated. Now that man was considered part of the saints in Corinth until he was excommunicated. Now in his case, uh, God granted him repentance. 
uh, in other cases, God uh, has not done that. Or Peter in 2 Peter 2 talk about the false teachers denying the master who bought them. Well, the people in the church uh, are addressed in the uh, call to worship and the benediction. If they're members in good standing in the church, not living in open sin, they are to be considered as part of the church. Uh, and so, in a sense, and John will say in 1 John, then they went out from us because they weren't of us. But as long as they were within that fellowship of the church, they were considered to be saints. And so, we can, we can use these terms federally, covenantally. The person who's in the visible church who is unconverted still has these external privileges and benefits, being part of the people of God and much that goes with that. Uh, if they apostatize and it's permanent, then they've shown that they, they were not. So apostasy is a real thing, but it's not what Federal Vision people would describe as a uh, losing uh, your standing in Christ. You have a, a legal is one term. That's the term I think that Bob Inc. and Burkauer, or Burkhoff prefer, or um, an external relationship to the covenant, uh, and that will be lost but you never had a living relationship uh, to Christ uh, in the covenant if you're not regenerate. Thank you for the question, Chuck. I think that that's, that's a really helpful, um, really helpful follow-up to the, uh, the Federal Vision Zach Attack episode from a couple <laughs> months ago. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Always fun to spend time with my friend Zach Dotson. Uh, Zach jocular Squared. Fellow. Zach squared. Well, we are a couple of squares, and we're both named Zach, so I guess that's appropriate. That's too. what I should call it. Or Zach cubed. <laughs> Zach cubed. Well, you know, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Zach Garris uh, on an upcoming episode on his book, uh, Masculine Christianity. So there will be another uh, Zach attack or Zach squared episode. So keep an eye out and an ear out for that episode coming up. All right, this question is framed by yours truly, Zach, but it was out of a discussion I had with uh, another individual. Can we overlay any two acts of worship? For example, could a congregation give financial offerings while simultaneously singing a song of praise? That was a particular question asked to me, and then I added, could a minister sing his sermon in part or in whole? That's a bit tongue-in-cheek. Could the worship leader sing the benediction, call to worship, assurance of pardon, or salutation? I've heard of that happening at other churches, uh, particularly in a large PCUSA church back in the day in D.C. And what are the determining factors in parsing this out from a biblical perspective? Well, Zach, it's really a, a very important question. Um, understanding or an answer to the question, we have to distinguish a very important concept, and that is forms of worship. So as, as we deal with worship, the Bible reveals to us uh, three different things that we're doing. The elements of worship are the things that we offer to God. And those are the things that are clearly revealed uh, in the Word of God, uh, summarized for us, for example, in the Confession of Faith, uh, in our own P OPC and PCA books of order. Uh, circumstances are the things that enable us to perform the elements. So place, time, organization, bulletins, hymn books, overheads for words of songs or whatever. Forms are the content uh, and the biblical structuring of the elements. Uh, and some forms are necessary. 
and are always non-negotiable. So the Bible defines preaching, and preaching is the verbal, uh, public verbal authoritative proclamation of the Word of God by the man appointed to that task. And so although I, in the church where I was converted, and actually the pastor was a, uh, one of the very early graduates of Westminster Seminary in that very first group, he was a, had a brilliant tenor voice, and he was known to sing sermons. So what you were making up actually um, uh, has been known to have occurred. Now, it wouldn't be inappropriate, though, for a man to, say, sing a couple of lines out of a hymn in the middle of his sermon. We might consider it a little strange and irregular, but that wouldn't be breaking the nature of the sermon by no. doing that, as no. opposed to just reading a couple lines, which is what I would do, even though I'm a singer. I, I, I don't see myself or envision myself singing anything in the middle of a sermon. Well, that would illustrative. It'd probably be more just, I've seen it before. I think it'd be more uh, distracting, distracting and useful. Yeah. An illustration must not be distracting. All right, so that answers that question. Then we have, uh, there are certain elements of worship that the Bible requires that be done by the ordained minister. So the benediction uh, is... Uh, particularly true there uh, and that because in a sense it's part of Christ speaking it's not a prayer it's not a wish uh, and it must be spoken by the minister the call to worship the assurance of pardon the salutation ought to be given uh, by uh, an ordained man so either a ruling or teaching elder uh, when say we have a student that goes to uh, one of these churches that doesn't have a pastor. I really hope the students encourage the ruin elders there to read the call to worship. It's an act of the session. Assurance of pardon is simply a reading of Scripture. Salutation is just something the you, you could have the congregation say. But again, none of these things are sung. Uh, they all are clearly revealed in their form uh, in, uh, in Scripture. But here we get to the issue. Some elements have more than two forms. So, for example, a psalm uh, might be a, uh, an expression of adoration, uh, and it also can be a prayer. And so, um, now again, some of our uh, exclusive psalmists uh, brothers think that psalmody never, a psalm never includes, it's not a species of prayer. Um, I think it is a species of prayer. And so you may take that psalm and you may sing it or you may pray it. You may uh, read it. Uh, and all of those forms would, would be covering in a sense more than one thing. Um, so Calvin, for example, then in Geneva would have people sing psalms during uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, which is highly preferable to somebody playing the piano or an organ during the Lord's Supper, which is absolutely distracting. Um, I prefer to have silence during the uh, Lord's Supper, uh, but I don't think it's wrong to sing psalms or hymns uh, during uh, the Lord's Supper. So the same with the uh, offering. Um, 
The advantage of singing is that, although I'm very keen on having times of silence and meditation in the worship, it is a corporate act. So as we are opposed to non-lyrical instrumental music within the confines of the worship service, thinking that that would be uh, something that is prohibited by Scripture, um, we have a choice either to have uh, silence for meditation, which at times we've done, or to have a more corporate participation at that point and have the uh, congregation sing a hymn or a psalm together. So I don't know of anything in the uh, theology of worship that would um, create a problem of um, singing a song of praise or thanksgiving. Because actually the, the offering is itself an, a statement of thanksgiving. And so as you're making a statement of thanksgiving, put that thanksgiving to the word. Thank you, Dr. Piper, for working us through that issue. I think that was a helpful and full answer. If there are follow-ups to that from anyone, either from an exclusive psalmist perspective or from a perspective that it would be inappropriate to overlay singing with the giving of tithes and offerings or some such um, combination, I suppose, uh, in a worship service, please send in a follow-up question dealing with a particular issue. Those are those are the kinds of questions we really enjoy drilling down into, going from the presentation problem down into the matter of principles at play. Our next question comes from Daniel Stanfill of Hernando, Mississippi, and this is an excellent question. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 4 for the reference um, when it comes up, but just to give you an idea, in summary form, that's where Christ stands up in the synagogue and proclaims his mission as the Messiah. So Daniel asks or says, I am currently a youth director at a PCA church in North Mississippi. When I came through licensure, I took no exceptions and I still hold to those convictions. Side note, Daniel, may your tribe increase. At a recent presbytery meeting, a commissioner posed an objection to a man during his floor exam regarding larger catechism 109. That sounds familiar. The man being examined took a position of no exceptions, which led the commissioner to read him Luke chapter 4, 16 to 21 which I summarized for you a moment ago. Upon reading the text, the commissioner asked him if hearing that text read produced a mental image of Jesus in his mind, and if so, would that be sin? The comment from the commissioner seemed to stress the unavoidability of having the mental image and therefore that it couldn't be sin. He seemed to think that this would present a quandary for those who hold to a no mental images of our Lord position. How would you respond? Could it be said that we could make a distinction between voluntary mental images and involuntary mental images? So now we get into the nature, not just of this issue, but I would say of uh, homardiology, generally speaking, or the nature of sin, generally speaking, this difference between voluntary and involuntary sin. But let's let's stick to the issue at hand in this uh, mental images of Jesus and larger Catechism 109 situation. Well, Daniel, thank you uh, for the question. And I'm on the examinations committee in our presbytery, and I actually, I got frustrated the night and I asked these guys. I said, uh, who's writing the script? Because we're hearing two exceptions, the recreational clause about the Sabbath, which in most cases, they don't have an exception, but why are they throwing out the red herring? And then this uh, 109 in the larger catechism. It's kind of like sometimes you'll see on Fox News, they'll do a collage of uh, the morning newspapers and news broadcast. And they're saying all the same thing. Somebody's writing a script, and they're getting a script. And so 
I know where the mental image thing came from, but where, how it's being perpetrated now, particularly in our seminaries, I find to be very uh, distressing. So just to clear this up, you're saying you're contending that with this commissioner on the floor of this presbytery and then with candidates that you see here in Calvary even and other presbyteries, there seems to be a common word track that's used to attack the larger catechism teaching out of 109 on mental seems images. To be. It's like the same words, the same right. script that's being circulated around, yes. the same articulation. Hmm, interesting. Well, I know some seminaries teach it, so they're getting in the classroom. Um, first state the principle. Nobody has to make a distinguishing visual image of anything that they read or hear. I'm going to prove that to you in a minute. Uh, now, to imagine that a man stood up in the synagogue uh, and read Scripture, you don't have to put a facial expression on him, do you? I mean, it's just a, a concept of man uh, is sufficient. I don't even think of a physical concept, but some people do think more in images. Uh, but when you get to your thing about willful or involuntarily, so the rape of Tamar, you hear that read in Scripture. What are you going to do with that, Daniel? If this guy's correct, you're going to have... Uh, pornographic thoughts about which you're going to have to confess. Uh, I can read the rape of Tamar and not have any physical impression. I know the concept of sexual intercourse and of forced sexual intercourse, and that's all I need. Uh, thoughts are concepts. It's a boogie bear. It is uh, not at all uh, necessary. Uh, but second, what this is really getting at is when we pray that we're not to have any uh, mental image of God. When we worship, and here's where you get to the matter with children. Uh, Christian education should have only one goal in mind, and that is that these children will grow up fearing God, which means they worship and uh, pray to Him. Now, you obviously have daughters, um, and our children are literalist. Um, and uh, there's just too many stories of pastors that will, children ask them, uh, uh, is you God? Or one pastor told me recently that he was on a family visit and the daughter went berserk and he got to the house and she went running to the house and mother said, what's wrong? She said, God's here. Children are literalist. And so they're looking at these pictures of Jesus uh, in their Bible storybooks. And what are they going to do? They are going to have some mental image when they pray. So even if, see, what these guys try to say is, well, it's, you know, it's only in worship that we can't have images. Well, uh, this guy's going beyond that because obviously reading Scripture in corporate worship is worship. So he's saying you can have images in worship as well. He's saying, the commissioner anyway, is saying that it's unavoidable. He, right. His contention is, is that... It, when you read a passage about the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly one that describes motions and activity and physical aspects like walking on water or, or standing up in the synagogue, you, it's unavoidable. You have to envision it if you're actually listening. That's what this, this commissioner seems to be. Yeah, and so then you have to envision all the, the sinful acts and all the sexual acts that are here uh, as as well in uh, in in scripture, we had a commissioner who uh, the the situation was reversed. We had a man, a candidate, uh, I think for an ordinand, 
wishing to take the exception to this on the grounds that it's unavoidable. And a commissioner stood up and said, well, if it's unavoidable, every time you read Genesis 1 and 2, do you imagine our mother Eve naked? I mean, I've never really built or constructed that image in my head while reading through Genesis. And, and I think the ordinance said, no, I haven't. And then the commissioner said, well, do you have to? Um, no, I guess I don't. And then why, why do you have to when you're reading narrative passages of Scripture about the Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry? And I thought it was a really great point. It is a point. And, uh, and this is where we get into where this comes from. What, what's the real point of this? And one of the things I do in the examination committee, and I've told all the brothers on there, that if a guy can't do this, then I don't care how minor the exception might be, he gets a big no from me. I asked these guys, tell me whom you've read on this. And how is it only in the last 30 years this has become an issue? When in the Reformed Church since the Reformation, and going back in the early church, you go back to Charlemagne and Al Kuhn, his resident theologian, who manfully stood up against this whole uh, image controversy in the um, early church in the ninth century. Um, tell me whom you've read and give me the arguments for the large catechism position. Uh, they can't do it. And uh, thus, I don't vote for them. Give me the arguments for your position outside this specious thing that I can't hear something read without making a mental image, which I can prove to you is not true, as we've just done with two illustrations, the rape of Tamar and uh, Mother Eve. Uh, the Bible's full of pictures that if we put them in our mind, we'd be a mess. And so it really is, it's, it's just, it's unhealthy. It's a symptom of what I call our neo-medieval fascination with imagery and, and the decline of literacy in our culture. And I think that's bleeding into the church when, in fact, we should be the bulwark of literacy and, and understanding things right. truly and not being so dependent on moving lights and sounds and colors and image and, and dare I say, even uh, aesthetic beauty. You know, these, these can all be good things, good. but we shouldn't be dependent on But there's on something them. else going on. Um, some of you will be aware that, what has been now, 10 years, close to 10 years, the, the uh, ARPCA, the Reformed Baptist Association, had a major controversy uh, over what's called the impassibility of Christ. Or the impassibility of God. Impassibility of God, excuse me. And um, uh, basically, these guys started saying, well, God does have these emotions and such. And as I've talked to some of the men that were holding to the confessions position, the impassibility of God, they were convinced that this was, and the word I want is escaping me, but it is basically a tool to get rid of, they had a very strict view of subscription. Oh, like it was a, a pretense or the occasion yeah, for that's, which there's to, a better word I just can't think to of. throw off strict yeah. subscription so, in their communion. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what's going on here. So we get these two fairly insignificant exceptions, but what we're doing is we're simply watering down the concept of confessionalism and lurking behind what these guys are teaching these very naive seminary students, I think is a much more uh, dangerous uh, concept. And, and because the reasoning is so, uh, so fallacious. Now, um, I didn't quite get your analogy about striking outside the fact that uh, what you're 
point you're making. For our listeners' benefits, Daniel had written a bit more to um, expand upon his uh, the core of his question. I, I read merely the, uh, the part that got oh, to the point, okay. so I didn't get into this. But um, since Dr. Piper brought it up, let me read it. To make an analogy, Daniel says, Larger Catechism 136 forbids striking, but surely a person who had a seizure instruct someone would not be striking in the sense intended by Larger Catechism 136. The difference is that the striking as a result of the seizure is involuntary. Therefore, could we say that the potential mental image produced in this commissioner's scenario is an involuntary mental image and is not in the category envisioned by larger Catechism 109? It seems that the divines had in mind an attempt to visualize our Lord or the mental image that must necessarily precede the construction of a painting or a sculpture, etc. So he's, he's just... I don't this think, is where he's getting into the gotcha, issue okay. of sin. No, I don't think that uh, it's still sin. If it's in, I mean, I have all kinds of in, in, uh, our concupiscence, our lust, or sin, and uh, they're very involuntary. Yeah, it's only when we make them voluntary they become more serious, as James will spell out. What about a strike um, or hitting someone as a result of a seizure in which you lose control of your body? Well, that's not a sin. That's not what the confession yeah, is doing. That, yeah, that's different than concupiscence or... Right, it's um, not an involuntary... Uh, yeah, I don't think the analogy works, yeah. in other words, because it's a... Right. Uh, the person has lost control of, of their s- system, so it's not even an involuntary sin. It's an involuntary physical act, the same way you're not responsible for high blood pressure. But, I, you know, I'm glad you asked the question, Daniel. I'm glad you stood firm. Uh, and... If you're being licensed, I assume you're going to seminary either in Missouri or in, in uh, Mississippi. Mississippi, and you make sure your classmates uh, uh, know where you stand on this and encourage them. Yeah, Daniel, thank you so much for the question, and it really is an encouragement to hear uh, from a brother who uh, seeks to be faithful, not just to our, con- to our confession, but to Scripture, and Scripture's clear teaching on these issues. Um, Our next question is from Pastor Michael Mock of Fayetteville, North Carolina. Michael, it's great to hear from you. And he says, I imagine some Baptists may argue against paedo-baptism in this manner. Given the Presbyterian belief in significant covenantal continuity, why would Jesus' disciples forbid the children to come to Jesus? Wouldn't they have already adopted the idea that the promise is for them and their children? How can we respond to this? And you know, this references... Uh, Matthew chapter 19, and it's um, parallel passages in the synoptics. Thank you, Michael. Um, the disciples, what they're doing there is, and you often see this in their actions, they are responding not biblically and theologically. They're responding uh, in one way protectively, which is what they often did. Do want to call down fire on these villages. Uh, these people are casting out demons, and they're not with us. Uh, it goes into that category. They're trying to the Savior, you know, people are pressing on him. He is constantly demands upon his time. They simply weren't thinking. Uh, and Christ takes the advantage of the occasion then to teach them and us this whole matter of covenant continuity. So I just think that they were acting as they normally did. Would you say that the disciples were acting impulsively in this situation? Impulsively, in the, in the to the degree that they simply wanted to protect Jesus. Yeah, yeah, they had their they had their priorities kind of out of alignment with Christ's. Right here, yeah, very good. 
from Logan Shelton of Taylor, South Carolina. Is it ever appropriate for a minister of the gospel to pronounce a formal benediction at the end of an event outside of public worship? No, it's not appropriate uh, unless it is a formal uh, worship service called by uh, officers of the church. It could be a Presbyterian General Assembly and not just local congregation. But uh, the benediction is the, the second bookend of our corporate worship we begin with a call to worship. So uh, I think, and I, I, I do these conferences, and, and, and you know, in the evening after I've finished a message, the, the very end of the prayer, the ministry gives a benediction. I'm always uncomfortable with that, and I think it's just, again, we're not thinking through what that act really is. Well, you know, I've had people, and, and help me to understand where there isn't a parallel here then. I, I've had people ask me, is it appropriate, for example, for a church to have a giving page on their website for people to make a charitable donation to the church outside of a public worship service? And my answer to that has been, yeah. Yeah, just as it's appropriate to sing a psalm or a hymn outside of worship, it's appropriate to make a, a contribution to a church which you wish to support outside of a worship service. Now, that shouldn't replace participating in the the act of giving within a corporate worship service, but it can certainly... But it's not an act of worship. It. Yeah, but it's the not... The benediction is an act of worship. You see, that's the difference. The but, benediction is clearly an act of worship. It's always been understood in the history of worship as an act of worship. So no, if on your website you said... because uh, So giving giving outside of worship service isn't necessarily an act of worship. It's not saying, at all. Not, but, not but even formal, not necessarily. It's not an act of worship. Yeah, but a formal benediction is ever and always an act of worship that shouldn't be divorced right. from the public worship Correct. of God by the you saints. Got it. Well, what about when each evening I go to my baby's cribs and I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I, I, I recite. It's a prayer. Okay. All right. So you wouldn't count that as a, you as can't a give a benediction. So no, whatever you think <laughs> you're doing anyway, you haven't. No, right. I think that blessings, uh, Patriarchal blessings are not in the category of a benediction. Um, and we've talked about that on the podcast before, too. That's why I brought it up yeah. again as a counterexample. Here. Yeah. So uh, in the same way, uh, our good friend who's written his book on worship gets into family worship, and he brings all the elements of worship in, yeah. called to worship, and that's just wrong. There are certain aspects of worship that may only be done in the corporate assembly under the governance of elders. Mm -hmm. and the call to worship and the benediction and the sermon um, and, of course, the Lord's Supper and baptism uh, must be kept exclusively uh, for those situations. All right, so how about this? Let's say the session of a church, which was hosting a conference, decided to call each conference session as a worship service and simply had a call to worship, um, maybe, probably the singing of a song and reading of Scripture, prayer, um, an address or sermon, and then a benediction. Would that be okay? If you had all the elements of worship uh, that are non-negotiable. Yeah. Uh, I think it's okay. I'm not real happy with having corporate worship outside the stated day of worship. Unless it's a quarter of the church meeting. Right. Yeah. But I mean... But for a conference. For a Bible conference. Or some other or ceremonial a, uh, event. A Good Friday conference. 
message. What do you do with a wedding? Is a wedding a worship service or is it a ceremony? You know, I teach that, it, that it's not a worship service. Because, yeah. again, it encompasses the same way. You often have a bit more jocularity. Yep. You're going to want to do some things in a wedding service that... Now, if you did a wedding the way Calvin did, and it was simply at the end of the service, you stood up and took your vows, mm-hmm. and vows are part of corporate worship, um, that would be very different. When Calvin did a wedding, this is just another kind of following this rabbit trail, would he present the bride and the groom to the people and have them kiss in front of everybody? No, no, no. no. Yeah, I didn't think so. They Public took their th- vows. That was it. They yeah. took their vows. Yeah, and which is an act of worship. Yeah, okay. Well, Logan, I think that's an excellent question. This is from Anonymous. Can mentally handicapped persons be admitted to the Lord's table in some cases, perhaps allowing a lower standard of understanding than required for, quote, normal, end quote, persons? If so, what would the lower threshold be? Depending on the answer to the above questions, a follow-up would be, how can one argue such a lower standard is permissible in these cases while at the same time not admitting young children? For example, for pedo communion. Well, okay. But say we got to take out that parenthesis, for example, pedo communion. Um, young children and pedo communion are not the same thing. Let's just start backwards, move from the back to the front. So, young children uh, may be admitted to the Lord's table if they can be examined by the session, if they've got a uh, sincere faith. If uh, what I've always done when I pastored was I would meet with them, I would talk about their faith, their trusting in Christ. I would ask them what kind of sins they deal with. I'd ask to see their sermon notes um, and uh, various things. And why do they, what does a baptism mean to them and why do they want to come to the Lord's table? Now, you know, a young child can answer those questions. And they, I wouldn't expect them to answer the questions that the level of an adult would answer the questions. And by young child here, we're not talking about a three-year-old. We're no. talking about six, seven, eight, six, nine, yeah, ten, whatever. Six at the earliest, probably. Yeah, so, so, um, and I've have been asked by a number of churches, a couple in particular, you know, about this case then of those who are uh, mentally handicapped, uh, and it's difficult, but. Uh, it's kind of the same approach. Now, sometimes parents can communicate with that child when nobody else can. And so if, if the parents have come to the conclusion that this child uh, has enough cognitive ability to profit from a sermon, that's, for me, the big issue because the 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 Lord's Supper is merely a visible sermon. If they can't profit from a sermon, then they shouldn't become the Lord's table. But if they've got sufficient capacity to profit from the sermon, and the parents think they are, um, then, and the parents think that yes, they, they, they trust the Lord, they love the Lord, and they see their life in the family as they deal with the frustrations of, of their handicap and whatever, uh, even though that person maybe can't um, verbalize with the session of that faith, I tend to accept the parents uh, as interpreters. And but it's a it's a session decision, not not a decision that I I would make. But uh, 
the idea of lower standard is simply you would obviously expect even a 30-year-old to have a more credible profession of faith than a 16-year-old in terms of how they express it. And in the judgment of charity, uh, and I think most of us would do this, uh, we'll have people come in and they don't do the best job of articulating their faith. But you give them some leading questions you, and you know them, and you've worked with them, and you give them some, and you work along with them, and you become convinced that these basic things, yes, they love the Lord, they're, they're trying to die to sin, they're in the word and prayer, uh, that maybe make the standard way too high rather than lowering the standard, is what I'm trying to say. Thanks, Dr. P. I think that brings us up on our time. Um, just one last recommendation there following up on the last question. I was struck reading Scott Manischist's book, Calvin's Company of Pastors, for a class taught by Ian Hamilton here. In that book, he goes through the minutes of the consistory and then also um, piecing through on my own some of uh, Philip Edgecombe Hughes's book, The Register of the Company of Pastors of Geneva, in, uh, in the time of Calvin, going through those two books, seeing how these men actually dealt with real issues, they, um, at this very early period of the Reformation, uh, their standard of what they counted a credible profession of faith was, in fact, a lot lower, yep. if we can use that language, than what we would today. Basically, they're looking for, can you recite the Ten Commandments? Can you recite the Apostles' Creed? Can you pray the Lord's Prayer? Do you believe it? Yes? Okay, great. And that was considered by them, at least in terms of their records, a credible profession. Now, as time went on, it's interesting because we have decades of their records. As time went on, the bar got higher as the people became more educated. Um, and, and as they were getting... That's the keen insight. Yeah, as they were shedding the vestiges of Romanism and, and popery and all of these things, and they were getting more and more scriptural in their thinking then the pastors and the elders were able to press, and, and they became more adept, too, uh, in the generation after Calvin in terms of searching out men's hearts and determining what is credible, what is not. And so those books are really helpful and just interesting from a historical perspective, uh, though not directly related to this issue of what to do with well, they mentally are, handicapped Well, they are, because he uses the word, are we lowering it? And yeah. Is that proper? Well, maybe we have it too high. Um, that's it. I, I like that. That's interesting. Now, Zach, surely you need to do some save the date things? Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Um, thank you, Dr. P. I actually had that in mind. Uh, with 2021 and the opening of, uh, of things, the loosening of restrictions across the country, uh, we had a very successful conference. I have not heard any complaints from anyone about getting sick uh, right after the conference. Praise the Lord for that. And uh, we are going to be involved and hosting as a seminary a number of events. First, the events we're hosting. I want to make a clear distinction here. We will be having two classes this summer, intensive courses right now. All systems are go. The first one is our summer institute with Dr. Timothy Zimmerman Whitmer. Uh, Dr. Whitmer, I call him Pastor Tim, was my pastor for a number of years at Crossroads Community Church, PCA, in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania. He's a man very dear to me. The last baptism he administered in the church before he retired from Crossroads was my daughter Abigail's baptism. And so uh, Pastor Tim is, uh, is, a, is a very dear friend and a beloved pastor to the Groff household. He'll be down here July 19th through the 23rd to teach our uh, summer institute 
called The Shepherd Leader, and it's working through his book and other materials to equip pastors and ruling elders in what I would call a, a not a modern appropriation, but just a renewal of reformed pastoral care. And I really appreciate the book. If you've read it, I'm sure you've appreciated it too. I've never met anyone who didn't. Um, but that'll be a great class, and and I really encourage elders and deacons and uh, pastors and seminarians to join us for that July 19th through 23rd. More info on that, gpts.edu slash summer. The other class we have is going to be in August. Dr. Um, Dr. McGraw, our systematician here at the seminary, will be teaching his elective on Reformed scholasticism. I had lunch today with a deacon locally who intends to to take that class. He said, I've already taken the days off from work. I'm going to be there. Um, that is a wonderful class. I, I really, really enjoyed taking it a number of years ago and highly recommend that to anyone. That's open to everybody. And um, again, that's in August. The dates are on the website, gpts.edu slash reformed dash scholasticism. Dr. Piper, you have something. Yes, Dr. Wilborn also going to do his uh, Southern Presbyterian class this summer with the tour. Oh, great. So I didn't know that. That's news to me, and I'll get the information out on the website as soon as possible. But Dr. Wilborn will be giving his class. Um, I believe he's changed the name now to Presbyterian Theology in the American 19th Century. There we go. And that wasn't just to shed the word Southern, uh, but it was because he incorporated a lot more material from uh, the Princetonians from WGT Shed and from several other Northern Presbyterians. So he didn't want people to be under the assumption that it was purely or only or solely Southern. He couldn't, he couldn't do the tour in January when he normally does it. Yep. So at least I, I understood. We were communicating because uh, somebody in Georgia wrote me about our doing a tour. And I said, we do do this. And I hooked them up with Dr. Wilborn and he copied me writing them back. And then Dr. Masters asked him also to work on one for Virginia, yeah, which would be great. Yeah, Dr. Master and I and Dr. Wilborn have been talking about what a mid-Atlantic Presbyterian tour would look like, going to the stomping grounds of Francis McAmey and Samuel Davies, and then also what a, uh, a Philadelphia-Princeton tour could look like. We would all be together. Yeah. yeah, so that that will be a really exciting time. I'm looking forward to to that new experience. But for longtime listeners will know what the tour here in the Carolinas looks like. If you're new to the podcast, basically what Dr. Wilborn does in these classes on Presbyterian history uh, is three days of classroom instruction and then two days of a public history tour in Columbia and Charleston, South Carolina. There are just two other events I want to put on your radar and just look at look them up online. One is the Pensacola Theological Institute. This year, Greenville Seminary is co-sponsoring it uh, with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, who's really running it. We're just sponsoring the event. But our friends, Dr. John Payne and Dr. Rick Phillips, are going to be speaking at the Pensacola Theological Institute. So we encourage you to look into that this summer. You get more information at alliancenet.org. That's the uh, website for the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And then the Gospel Reformation Network is hosting a conference called O Church Arise, really geared toward PCA uh, ruling and teaching elders, but open to anybody. And that will be on May 5th and 6th coming up at Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We, along with Westminster Theological Seminary and hopefully a couple more schools are sponsoring that event and what the Gospel Reformation Network is doing. And more information on that at gospelreformation.net slash events. 
and uh, friends, we are so thankful for your time. We hope that this was a beneficial episode to you and Dr. Piper. One more news thing, and that is our becoming the publisher of the Confessional Presbyterian. Yes, yes. That's very exciting. Yes. If you've been following our feeds on social media and gpts.edu, you'll know that we have assumed responsibility for publishing the Confessional Presbyterian Journal while also um, keeping and retaining the services of Mr. Christopher Coldwell for the foreseeable future in serving as general editor. And I got my word. You got your word. Canard. Canard. What a word. That's it. That's, That's word. what it is. That's behind it. It's a canard. <laughs> the word from earlier on all these uh, confessional <laughs> exceptions would be they're, they're merely canards in order to break down the confessionalism of our churches. Oh, very. That is a good word. That, that is, is better than pretext yeah, or subtext. I knew or there was pretense. a perfect word there. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, Dr. Piper, thank you for your time. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.